Well, welcome everybody to episode number two of the Endgame. Joining me uh, as is now customary after one episode, the fantastic Bill Fleckenstein. Bill, hi, mate. I'm uh, happy to be here today, especially mate, because I'm dying to do the, the interview we're about to do. Yeah, we have got a, a very special guest joining us uh, this week as part of kind of our quest to try and figure out what the end game looks like. We've Bill and I drew up a hit list of the people we really wanted to, to ask these questions to, and this guy I think was at the top of both our lists. And, and surprisingly, and uh, and we're very grateful for this, he's agreed to come on and do this. So, so Bill, why don't you why don't you just uh, talk a little bit about our guest and your backstory with him because I think it's important. Okay, um, um, for those that don't know me i ran a short only fund from 1995 till 2000 the beginning of 2009 and when i was trying to figure out catching the end of the stock bubble was difficult of course but i knew what i was trying to do when we got to the real estate bubble it was harder because i could never figure out where all the bad paper was i knew there was obscene uh, um, amounts of borrowing going on by people who could never pay it back. And I knew prices were ridiculous in the housing world, but I did not understand who was funding it. And I kept trying to figure that out. I was lucky enough to find somebody who was in the mortgage origination business, and he helped me put some of the pieces of the puzzle together. But I stumbled upon our guest, um, who at the time was working in AIG's structured products division before he moved on to UBS. And because of his tremendous intellect and ability to put things together, he was able to share with me things that were going on in the mortgage plumbing world, if you, if you would, uh, who knew about the credit stacks. But more importantly, he knew about the sieves and spivs which is where the stuff was hiding. And he helped open my eyes to what was really going on, which helped me understand how it was going to break and how badly it was going to break. And then after that, in the recovery period, helped me keep perspective on things that were getting better. And more importantly, things that I didn't have to worry about. And he was just starting his consulting business uh, in early 09, which has become an extraordinary success. And um, when he was working at the other two places, he didn't want his name to be used because he worked for you know big houses. And when he was starting his new business, he didn't really want his name to be used. So in the 0506 period, I came up with a nickname for him, which I thought described his ability to synthesize ideas and explain incredibly complex things that were going on in the part of the netherworld or the ether we couldn't see. And so I nicknamed him the Lord of the Dark Matter, which is probably the most appropriate and best (laughs) nickname I've ever come up with for anybody. And um, he's been kind enough to come on with us today because you obviously know him, Grant. Um, And he's everyone's going to get to find out uh, who that is today. And I've got some people that have read my column for a long, long time, and they're all dying to know, not that it really matters. So uh, today is going to be a big reveal, in addition to being incredibly thought-provoking. I, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm extremely excited to be able to do this. Well, it's funny. You know, I, I 
like all your readers, I was fascinated with the identity of the Lord of the Dark Matter. Um, and funny enough, I didn't realize who he was. I didn't realize that I actually had known the, who the Lord of the Dark Matter was for a while before I realized he was the Lord of the Dark Matter. And of course, when it's one of those uh, instances where, where you put the two together, you just go, well, of course he's the Lord of the Dark Matter because he knows more about the stuff than anybody I know as well. So how could it be anybody else? And just one thing, I, I wish this was a video so we could actually show this. It's, I think it was about 2010. Uh, he put together the schematic of how the plumbing, the financial plumbing all really worked. And it literally was probably on a, 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 a um, something that was a good, maybe three and a half feet by three and a half feet in diagrams everywhere. I mean, how you can even think of that to keep it straight, yeah. to be able to put it together. Um, anyway, he's an extraordinary guy. Plus, he's a great guy, and this is going to be loads of fun. He is a great guy. Uh, he's uh, Australian-born. He's London resident. Uh, so let's welcome to the podcast the Lord of the Dark Matter himself, James Aiken. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you with us. Good to be with you, mate. It's, uh, it's, it's, I've been a subscriber to Fleck for well over a decade now, and uh, you know, so for me, this is, a, this is a huge day to uncover, take the mask off the face. Well, I, I bet by the end of this, some people were wishing it had been kept on. <laughs> well, the good news is you've still got the mask, so we can slip it back on, and Bill can just change your name. If it give you something slightly, yeah. slightly less impressive if it doesn't work out. Well, I, I apologise yeah. to anyone unfortunate enough to be watching us all that I, I forgot to put my tinfoil hat on, but I can get it if you wish. No, no, you're okay. They're only going to be hearing us, so we're all good. You can imagine my relief now that I don't have to worry about, you know, uh, uh, doing a, a reveal like by accident sometimes. So now that you're out of the closet, maybe we should get started. Let's go. <laughs> all right. So I have a handful of what I think are important questions that I would love to hear what you think okay. about them. But I think perhaps the best way to start in is, in your last Notes from a Small Island, you mentioned the possibility of inflation. Um, and it's not something I can recall you ever really even making a throwaway comment about. Um, you know, I've had my hair on fire about inflation for quite some time um, because I'm convinced the statistics don't capture it, but that's a different issue. For some reason, you are more sensitive now to it, it would appear, I thought your strategy of Mouton 19 futures was interesting, but in any case, I'll I'll let you I'll let you answer the question because I'm really I'd like to know how you're thinking about the inflation process. Let's let's see. We're going to tax some of that, and we'll we'll break it down into subcomponents. And okay. um, but I think Bill, one of the reasons I've been fairly sanguine about inflation for the past, let's say dozen years or since quantitative easing started is because firstly we had one heck of a bust in 2007 and 2008 it was a heck of a bust demand collapse um, nobody was buying inflation expectations and everything obviously collapsed that's no surprise so first and foremost it was an enormous bust which central banks around the world tried to offset and unfortunately, as we move through the back end of 2009 and into 2010 and 11, fiscal policy was turned off. And I thought to myself, gee whiz, you know, if we look at what the central banks are doing, the money printing, the more money printing, buying all these assets, gosh, at some point, you'd think notionally that would be inflationary. But so large was the overhang 
Well, what a lot of these economists call the output gap from 2008. And then fiscal policy was not available either. So I was fairly relaxed about any persistent surge higher in realised inflation. I don't mean market expectations. I mean realised inflation. And, um, yeah, I, I, I know from time to time headline inflation popped up, but really because monetary policy, ironically, has been the only game in down, because there's no been no fiscal policy is indeed up until 2017 fiscal policy was unavailable in Europe. We had austerity in the UK and of course we had the Tea Party in the United States. So that's the reason I've been fairly relaxed about it. Pivoting to the present moment, I mean, look at the one level, I think a, a child just snuck up behind me, but I'll keep going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> working from home, I've only done it for 11 years. I'd think I'd figure out how to lock my door. Um, by the way, while I have you both, I, I'd recommend to anyone listening that they get themselves one of these when they're working at home, and I'll show you why. For the last time, no. No. <laughs> no. No. N-O. No. No, 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 no. 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 You get the picture? <laughs> That's priceless, mate. <laughs> Let me shut the door, seriously. Okay, okay. <laughs> That's gold. <laughs> that, that'll probably fall on the uh, editing room floor. But no, wait. That, no, 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 no. No. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Who knew that inflation could be so much fun? Um, <laughs> and we haven't got started. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Now, what have we got today? We have this enormous global disinflationary shock. So to even think about inflation in a global economic shock, such as unlike anything we've seen since perhaps the 30s, is, is a little bit strange. But let's think about what we have. We have the most rapid reaction function from central banks ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the case of the Fed, what took two years in 07 and 08 took about two weeks this time. Yeah. And yeah. as we saw this week, Bill, he's committed to just keep going yeah. and going and going. And, you know, he makes Mario Draghi look like a bit of a sook, right? <laughs> this, yep. this is whatever it takes cubed or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that applies in most jurisdictions around the world. Mm -hmm. but of course, there's two differences now. We have fiscal policy available and then some, right? We probably have one last bill coming in Washington, probably starts to get discussed in late July or August. Mitch McConnell says, it's another trillion. I mean, oh my gosh, on top of what we've already got. Yeah. We've got all these bonds out there, which we'll come to in a moment, I'm sure. And then you've got this other event, which is a supply side shock. Now calibrating it is very difficult, but it's been a long while. I mean, 2008 was a demand shock. This event is elements of a demand shock oh, with yeah. a heck of a lot of supply shock. Mm -hmm. So to finish this point, ultra easy monetary policy, we know that. Um, fiscal policy all in and even still being turned up, we know that. And then a supply side shock to work our way through, which as the world comes out of hibernation, 
we'll run into bottlenecks and supplier delivery delays and all sorts of things. And while I remember it, there's one last component. We might have a very unusual situation later this year where the unemployment rate, let's just stick with the United States, remains very high, relatively speaking. So let's say 10, 12% maybe. And to get workers back in the job, companies might need to pay up for labour, which we haven't seen for a long, long time. And look, I could go into a few other details, but to leave it there, we have a combination of events there or policy stances and developments, which make me think that the probability of realised inflation, not inflation expectations, but realised headline inflation, my sense is the probability is higher than it's been in a long, long time that it will start to go up. And when I say start to go up, look, there's no algorithm in the world that has parameterized anything other than inflation being somewhere around 2 2.5% in perpetuity. So what I'm thinking is what's the probability that for some period of time, maybe a sustained period of time, we start to see CPI outcomes and core inflation, which is, you know, the Fed loves, start to inch up from a 2% range to a 25 to a 3% range. And most bizarrely of all, we start to see average weekly hours going up and stuff like that. So that's why I'm wondering about, to be very clear to anyone listening or watching in lads, it's not to say inflation will happen. It's to say, hmm, it's not priced in markets, and yet we have this backdrop that makes me wonder that the probability of it might be higher than markets are thinking about right now. And hence, I want to look at a few things that we might, um, might do on the back of that notion to be tested by events. So would it be fair to say that in sum, the preconditions to actually getting it going have kind of come together in a way that they they haven't really, uh, as you've already just articulated. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're slowly coming together. I mean, look, we've got we've got the fiscal and monetary policy all in. Um, you would imagine that with the money supply growing at the rate it is, that it'd be astonishing if we didn't see higher nominal growth in the second half of 2020. And then I'll be watching wage outcomes, supply bottlenecks, all these other things, uh, trying to calibrate or estimate the extent of the supply shock to see how much headline inflation can pick up. And frankly, it may not, but I'm wondering about it a lot. Do you, James, do you, I have, look, I'll just jump in. James, do you think that this time around, because you, normally you get the ability to see expectations picking up and mm. it gives you a bit of a lead, do you think mm. this time around we might get the tail wagging the dog and we might see sudden surprise inflation and then expectations play catch up? Oh, let me, yeah, let me just add just let me add a thought to that because that was where I was going to go and right. we can put our two questions together because I think they'll mm. work. One of the things that I've observed in my 40 years doing this, the guy that was my original mentor mm. used to say to me, it, what really matters is inflation psychology. Yeah. And... and and, and, and so people have been sanguine, maybe for a lot of the reasons you have, you stated as to why the last 10 years QE didn't lead to it. 
So I've always thought that you had to change inflation expectations, not not the market's inflation expectations, not what you derive from tips and stuff like that, but Mm. but people's. And so I wonder if things like a shortage of toilet paper and things like that that make people think, oh, maybe I can't just get this. Or, okay, prices have gone up now because of disruptions. We know what we're doing at, you know, at restaurants, if you pay more and things like that. If we haven't put the seeds also in place to shift psychology such that when these events start to occur differently, they hit a, uh, a, a fertile patch, so to speak, which is sort of, I think that fits in with your question, Grant. It was like, how might this coalesce? It's a bit like Hemingway's aphorism on bankruptcy, isn't it? Slowly, then all at once. And mm-hmm. you're right. If you look, if, and here's an, actually an interesting anecdote again for people listening or watching in. I remember buying, you know, Adam Ferguson's book, When Money Dies in 2010. I bought three or four books on inflation because I thought, well, I don't think there's any inflation, but how might it happen? And then, you know, books like that. Uh, really, uh-huh. really invaluable. And they were popular, Bill, you recall, and Grant in, in, in 10 and 11, and yeah. everyone was falling over themselves to do curve cap trades in rates because inflation had to happen, and, and it just couldn't because the overhang was so immense from 08 and there was no fiscal policy. But I, I do think there's something in your psychological perspective that people just decide, oh, it's costing me more to do X. I'm really starting to notice this. But I would say as an important caveat, I don't see how you can anticipate any higher realised inflation, say in, in baskets, consumption baskets, um, unless you have a concurrent or perhaps preceding rise in wages which after 128 months of expansion, ultra-energy monetary policy was barely able to achieve. Mm-hmm. So I think the psychology takes hold if, ironically, this unemployment insurance that everyone's been provided with kind of boosts their income and then or they get insurance yeah. for a long period of time, they go back to work and they're able to get some kind of wage boost from their, from their employer and, and then you sort of start spending a bit and then there's bottlenecks and then you notice that the prices are going up. I, I regret I can't answer that in a scientific way, but I think right. the point you're making about a switch going on is probably correct. So it, so it would seem then that we have the most pregnant conditions to get some inflation that would be disruptive, even if it's not a big absolute number. So there's there's two things I forgot to mention. Sorry to interrupt. Look, I'm I'm well aware that two enormous components of US inflation are actually housing costs and health. So you'd have to imagine that you'd never get a sustained increase in US headline inflation. Let's just call it headline inflation as opposed to realised inflation. Unless you started to see housing costs and health costs really ticking up a lot. Well, but the, the ironic thing about that is that, as you know, uh, mm. and, and probably some listeners do, but not all of them, right. is how contrived, for lack of a better word, or to be politically correct, um, the CPI is. Because yeah. when you allow substitution and hedonics and, yep. and the way they calculate owner's equivalent rent and all of those things, they don't, and, and everyone's 
own personal basket is different depending on your age and economic uh, stratification. Uh, it occurs to me that people might start experiencing, they might finally get upset at the fact that healthcare inflation is as strong as it is or tuition. And then the fact that the CPI never registers it could actually cause them to lose more confidence because they say, oh, they're, they're lying to us about it. I mean, I, I, that's a, a couple steps down the road, but. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of steps prior to that. And let, let's think about them. I mean, if we're trying to think about what do we do if we think the probability, it, the probability of inflation going up is higher than markets are willing to consider today. I'm afraid that, and I don't mean you're doing this, but I, I see it elsewhere that people get wound up about the hedonics in the CPI. You know, the market's only going to respond to the CPI that they see printed as opposed to breaking down the components. So I could, have the, I could look at the Billion Prices Project at mm -hmm. MIT and State Street, which is actually very useful. And frankly, so far, it's not showing you anything terribly different to what we're seeing in the traditional CPI prints in the United States. But there is one important other step here, which is that in cycles gone by, when inflation was forecast by a central bank to be picking up, a central bank would act to knock it on the head. And monetary policy, so let me be clear, policy rates, as they used to be, work with a long and variable lag. Asset purchases are instantaneous, right? Yeah. But monetary policy rates still work with a long and variable lag. So in cycles gone by, the Fed would have said, oh, geez, you know, 15, 18 months out, things are probably looking a bit tight. We should tighten today. And eventually that'll trickle down, dampen consumption and everything else. And inflation will calm back down to target. Not now. These people have been trying for 12 years to create inflation and to get it meaningly, meaningfully above using the US example again, you know, that mystical core CPI of two points, core PCE, I should say, of 2.0%. The point being, if it starts to come in a bit hot, they're going to be immensely relaxed about yeah. it. Yes. That's and an they're going to let it run. And they're going to let yes. it run. Yes. And, and, and the history of inflation regimes changing is that, again, it's Hemingway. It's just like, oh, it's here. Yeah. Right? Well, that is an excellent point that you make about they're going to let it run hot because yeah. they, they believe they need to make up for past shortfalls. That's right. So the reason why I wanted to tackle that first Mm. is because in, in accordance with the theme of this show, i.e. the end game, one of the questions, burning questions in my mind, which is what I've been dying to talk to you about, uh -oh. um, uh, is how do the, does, it's a, kind of a two-part question, how does the money printing regime come to an end? Because I think we all know that we, this, this can't go on forever. Mm. As you know, I've, my phrase has been at some point, the bond market will take the printing press away from the central banks. Mm. And while I fervently believe it, I've never been able to come up with a, I've never really thought we were close to having it happen yet. I, I want to say that. And what I would like to know is in your opinion, do you have, 
have you thought about how this might end? And, and do you have an opinion on whether it will end and they'll take the printing press away? And I think how they would respond if it looked like that was happening. Could you, could you kind of use your imagination and tell me how that looks to you? Let's think purely in intangible terms. How would central banks lose control of the bond market? And first and foremost, we need to think about the float, the free float. Let's take the very, very unfortunate case of Europe and the ECB and bunds and shats and bobbles, which is, let's just think of it as the German government bond market. And unsurprisingly, the ECB is buying a lot of these things. No surprise there. And I remember a speech given by a fiendishly clever man called Benoit Cure. Yeah. And he was at the ECB for a long time, very smart, worked at the French Treasury, knows his fixed income markets, back the front. And he's now at the BIS. And Bill, he gave a speech, I think, oh, I'm going to say three years ago, talking about the efficacy of quantitative easing. And of course, nearly all these central bank speeches about the efficacy of asset purchases that they're doing are post-rationalisation. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, we did that and uh, hey, it worked. Great. But he made a point, he put up a chart of the ECB's purchases of German government bonds. And here is the tragic thing for any of us who still believe in price discovery or any bond market sell-off that might result in the context of higher inflation, because you would imagine, or the textbooks tell you, that if inflation does show up, there should be a much higher inflation risk premium in long-term government bonds. Not according to Cura, because he put up a chart, and this was three years ago before the ECB had ramped up their purchases again, and he showed that the free float, the free float of German government bonds all of them in private sector hands was approaching 20% and falling. Yeah. Now, that's the conundrum when we think about outcomes because investing 101, macro investing 101 bill tells you that if you anticipate higher inflation, you just sell the long bond obviously, right? You just get rid of duration and you stay short. But if in this day and age, the European Central Bank is trying to create inflation by holding long-term bond yields down and they own 80% plus of the float, where's the forced seller? Right. And, and that's the conundrum of what to do about any of this. So to come back to your, your point, you know, when does the bond market take on central banks or when do central banks lose the bond market? Well, the answer might be when they need to sell or when they stop buying. And again, unfortunately, when they need to sell, well, they're all committed to once they've finished the current spurt of asset purchases to rolling over maturing securities to keep the size of their balance sheet constant. Yeah. I mean, look, we could rail against it and we should rail against it for a long time to come. It's almost unfair, but I'm afraid that's the game we're involved in. Would the analysis, sorry, James, would the analysis change? And that was brilliant. 
Hmm. Would the analysis changed if we looked at the U.S. government bond market because it's so much bigger and it's growing yep. fast? Yes. Um, might that be? Could it, I mean, is it the same dynamic? I never thought of it that way before. No, it's a it's a good point. Obviously, the Fed well, the Fed's doing their very best to gobble up the free float of treasuries, mind you. But but by golly, they've, they've got a long, long way to go before they own the treasury market. Um, not nearly, put it this way, the Fed has not nearly cornered the Treasury market as the ECB has cornered the bond market or bobbles and shats and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. We're not remotely at that point. The other thing I'd just point out while I remember is that when the Fed was doing their first round of quantitative easing, 10-year Treasury yields and the long bond sold off because people were believing in reflation. It was the signaling effect of the Fed buying all these bonds. And the point being at the time, the Fed would have wanted a steeper yield curve to allow banks to lend and to signal that reflation had arrived and all these good things. But in the United States, let, let's, let's think that through. We have as of yesterday, sorry, Wednesday, a central bank that for the foreseeable future is going to be buying 80 billion of treasuries and uh, 40 odd billion of agency MBS per month. So they're going to be soaking up a lot of collateral and they're going to be, you know, not selling anything, reinvesting stuff. You know, it's, it's back to where we were, unfortunately, in, uh, you know, 11, 12 and um, so forth. I don't think any leveraged investor is going to want to take them on. But then we flip the argument around and let's think of it as a pre-mortem. What would a bond market accident, a bond market accident look like in treasuries? And it's so reflexive because I think it would be a simultaneous combination of inflation pops up. The exit from lockdown turns out to be much smoother than any of us imagine. And we head back towards trend growth in the US, which is what, roughly 2% real? Yeah. Something like that. And then people go, well, hang on a second. The Fed's allowing this to run hot, but they still want to hold rates low. And then the dollar starts to slip. Now, I, I don't know what the right probability is to handicap all of that. But, Bill, if I was to imagine a situation where the long end of the US Treasury market was under a lot of pressure and global investors were repricing it, I'd have to imagine it would entail something going wrong with the dollar. Mm. Which, James, which is strange because, Grant, as, as you know as well, that the dollar's been broadly doing nothing for a yeah. long time. It's just range trading. Well, this, this is really interesting because as I was listening to you there, the thought that was a, uh, occurring to me, you know, we, Japan has stealthily and very quietly cornered a big part of its bond market. The ECB yeah. have cornered a big part of the bonds, interestingly, because... They're the only things worth a damn, right? If they can if they can hold things steady by cornering the bond market quietly and watch the southern European countries react along with it, but leave as many of those in private hands as they can, at least yeah. they've got a, a relatively money good asset on their balance sheet. But yeah. if you think about the way they go with that and they gradually corner that market and reduce the free float, I'm thinking to myself, well, this must mean that the, the pressure valve has to be the currency in, in some way, shape or form. People have to look at what's happening on and, and react in the currency. You'd think so. But there's another, there's another caveat. I mean, I've, 
it, it must sound like to some of our listeners that I'm trying to talk my way out of my own view. <laughs> I'm just trying to calibrate all yeah. the moving parts of this. Yeah. And, and frankly, lads, I'm trying to imagine how am I going to lose money if I turn out to be wrong? What's go- what am I going to have overlooked or missed if I say, yippity-doo, inflation's coming, I want to be the clever fella who shorts the long bond, I short the dollar versus something, well, we, we, Bill might well, be able to think of one asset. That's the I'm other sure. problem, against <laughs> what? <laughs> I'll leave, I'll, we'll maybe debate it offline. It's, it's tricky, Bill. It's tricky. Yeah, I know. But, Let but me, look, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just want to make sure that we think about uh, another technical point here, and Grant brought it up about the Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan, bless them, have destroyed the JGB market. It's not even a market. It's just two numbers on a screen that sometimes trade. And the Bank of Japan claims that the reason their yield curve control has been so effective because it's, it's hovering around zero, give or take 10 basis points, and they've had to buy so little is because they're so credible. No, <laughs> they've killed the market. Well, let's, and let's hold that thought, okay, because there's a segue from what we're on, which we're about done with, that I want to get to that exact topic. So if I may just kind of interject yeah, sorry, for yeah. a second. No, 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 this is great. I, I wanted to touch base one more time about the difference between the ECB and oh, okay. the thought process and the U.S. Hmm. Despite reasons to be bearish on the euro, and yeah. the ECB and the problems that are endemic to yeah. trying to yeah. unify and all that stuff. Yeah. One thing I always said in defense of the euro was, okay, mm-hmm. all those things are true, but there's one thing that they are doing. They have rules about the percentage size of the, the budget deficit vis-a-vis GDP. And even though they fudge the daylights out of them and they change them whatever they need to, yeah. they at least have some rules, which we do not. Therefore, I think it's easier for a central bank to corner the the boons particularly than it than the the problem the the, the Fed has. So um, you know that may play into it. So it may be that the problem can't really start in Europe. If if it was to start, it would start here. But the other place, and 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 you can finish that and start the next one is I wanted to go to Japan because what I really want to know is since they have cornered that market and it doesn't exist and they own so many, what if we, what if they decide to go down the cold fusion route? And the reason I ask the question is because sometimes in trying to understand things that are nearly imponderable, I try to take it to the, to the farthest extreme. So let's say a central bank could buy up enough of the, the country's debts to then say to the treasury, okay, I'll give all the debt back to you for uh, a 200 year piece of paper at one basis point. And effectively they've torn it up, but they kept it on the balance sheet. What would markets look like on the other side of that? I've always thought if I could figure that out, I would learn something. I can't figure it out, but I'm hoping you can. There you go, there's a hot potato. Well, thanks for that um, (laughs) hospital pass there. I, (laughs) I, uh, I wish I could give a sensible answer, but look, your point about Europe, I think, is broadly correct because now they're trying to do things they've been postponing for decades. Whether it works or not, time will tell, but they're trying to complete banking union, capital markets union. There's elements 
of joint and several liability, euro bonds and stuff like that. It's absolutely not a Hamiltonian moment as so many people are spinning it, but they're trying to do something different. And on balance, that's probably no bad thing for European growth prospects for the first time in goodness knows how long. And it's probably no bad thing for European equities either, um, which have been out of favour for all the right reasons for a long time. But you're right about if, you, if, if you're imagining a bond market rupture, assuming, of course, Madame Lagarde doesn't open her mouth on BTPs, um, <laughs> yeah. Europe is probably not the place to be looking. On Japan, As much as they try to say it with a straight face, you know, Kuroda-san, who's that little imp, oh, no, 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 this isn't monetary financing and there's no, 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 there's not debt repudiation and stuff like that. I mean, look, Mr Magoo can can see that the idea the Bank of Japan's going to be a net seller of JGBs or otherwise sell, wind down their portfolio is just not plausible at some point, which is the critical thing there's a reckoning for the Japanese. I'm just not sure what that trigger is. And that's my conundrum with it, Bill. I, I watch what's happening in Japan. I, I say to myself some days, gee whiz, I wonder if Japan's the template for all of us. I don't know. But I very much regret, and I apologise to listeners, that I, I, I don't know how to think about the end-end game other than some kind of repudiation at some point, and it may yet be decades away. But does that, I, James, does that, does, can, that, does that once again lead us back to the currency? If they, if they come up with this oh yeah. scheme, I mean, well, that's, I, that's, all, I can, all I can think is that the currency has to take it somehow. But what, let, me, so. let me just, let me add this to Grant's question. Um, yeah. As he asked, um, as you pointed out, there's no way to know when that might happen. But mm. if, in fact, they did it, let's just say they did do it, then what, what Grant asked, I think, is then after they did it, would the, would the yen go up or down? Would, the, would new JGBs be priced somewhere differently? What, what would happen afterwards, would you guess? We don't have to know when it would happen, but I think trying to understand what would happen afterwards might be useful. Let's then think about who gets hurt if Japanese, uh, I don't know what happens if they're written off or repudiated. Do, do they clear at zero or do they clear at par? Is it money, is it money good or is it money bad? Right? This I don't is, know. This is, That's so why I'm asking you. <laughs> so let's think about two scenarios here. We'll think about a scenario where the, the Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance, who ironically own the Bank of Japan's reserves, come to a deal where the JGB is owned by the Bank of Japan, they strike a line through them. I assume, now if you're putting a big X through something, you probably take that as meaning it's worth nothing, it's gone. But for the people who actually own some of the similar JGBs that the Bank of Japan owns, what happens to them? What happens to the Japanese insurance companies? who have to uh, uh, own JGBs for liability management purposes. Um, and what does it mean for Japanese pension funds? What does it mean for the large remaining owners of JGBs? Now, maybe that's the wrong question because you'd imagine that there was some kind of repudiation in Japan 
by that time, the Bank of Japan would own 90% of the JGBs yeah. anyway. But I do think it's, it's critical in terms of trying to imagine a scenario for the yen. Because on the one hand, if you wipe out the JGBs and say they've basically vanished, that probably has negative consequences for Japanese <laughs> domestic think. holders. And if they were trying to recover the losses on the JGBs they hold, these Japanese insurance companies, guess what they would do? Sell a lot of foreign assets. So in that scenario, you could possibly see the yen a lot higher. But I think realistically, the signalling effect of a repudiation of JGBs or a wash, a rinsing of JGBs, whatever, we want, I don't even know what the right term is, but I think the signalling effect when you're destroying a debt burden that can't be met, I would have thought that's colossally inflationary. Yeah. And Japanese equities would go to some ridiculous number. And my best guess is that the yen more likely than not would weaken very substantially. But, you know, we're not, not there yet, but that's purely best guess scenario. Well, that, that's, I mean, that's, that, that was my thought process too. And I figure if they, if they can get to a percentage of the bond market in their own hands and, and then they yeah. move for Bill's cold fusion scenario, let's say they get 95% of it and that's the magic number. The remaining 5% right. presumably will be held by the pension funds and the Japanese bank, the life insurance companies. They would have to essentially print the money to buy them off those guys at par. How else do you deal with that, right? I mean, at this point, they've printed money to buy everything else. So I would imagine that would be the... The, sense, the sensible, I mean, this is, we're in a world where we talk about that as being sensible. Now, here's something we can watch if we we're anticipating that something was about to happen in JGBs, and it's not JGB futures or 30-year yen swaps or even dollar yen. I think you're both aware, as I'm sure many listeners are, that one of the, the biggest risk-free short-term trades in the world over the past several years has been what I call this JGB repack trade. Mm -hmm. And because of discontinuities and, and certain relationships in these giant cross-currency basis swap markets, which we won't go into, but there's an opportunity for anyone with a lot of dollar cash to lend dollars in exchange for yen invested in Japanese government T-bills and enjoy a healthy pickup over the equivalent US T-bill that I'm looking at out the corner here. And all sorts of people have done that trade on an enormous scale. The People's Bank of China, and this is all public domain, um, mutual funds around the world, family offices, anyone basically with a large dollar balance has swapped their dollars into yen, put it into Japanese government T-bills and effectively created a synthetic US T-bill with a yield pickup. And in a low-rate world, those extra few, sometimes more basis points, well, it's more than a few, it's very useful. Mm -hmm. So why does that matter? Foreigners now own 70% of the Japanese government T-bill market. Now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that at all. Right. And it's all because of this opportunity okay. to lend your dollars. And of course, the Japanese authorities know this. There's some very strategic global players who have this position on. I think there's a number of sovereign wealth funds and central banks and others. And it's a liquid, risk-free trade. 
well, generally risk-free as long as you choose your counterparty <laughs> wisely. But the reason, but the reason I mention that to, to your fellas is because if I wanted, it would be an enormous tip-off if all of a sudden foreign holdings of Japanese government T-bills started to fall down a lot because that to me would be a tip-off that something's coming. Because mm. I'm not going to be told, we're not going to be told. No, right. But the People's Bank of China will know. Okay, so um, that is really interesting. So that would help on the sensing something is changing. Yeah. What, what I want to do is I wanted to share with you how, well, how I thought about the cold fusion, how it works, right. see if, it, if it's logical, makes sense. Because it winds up with a similar outcome. When I look at it, of course, I'm going to spin it bullishly because they will. They'll say, look, we know it. We, we're just changing one asset for another in this world of, of inflation. Oh, yeah. So they swap. They swap with them off, mm. you know, the, whatever the hundreds of trillions of yen it is. And they, they have a new asset that uh, yields one basis point, so it doesn't cost them anything, uh, the government that is. And now they swapped an asset for an asset. And, oh, yeah. and so there would, be nothing, there would be nothing derogatory about the JGBs that are left. The ones that are left behind now are more credit worthy than ever because they've managed to take their horrendous debt to GDP down by two thirds. So yeah. it, it seems to me then finally, in the land of deflation fears, you would have taken the deflationary outcome off the table. The That's debt right. collapse cannot happen. That's right. Therefore, therefore, we don't need to worry about it. And if the epicenter of all things deflationary, that being of the last 20 years being Japan, so to speak, were to no longer have that threat, that would feed back into a general change in inflation psychology that we were talking about. And I think JGB yields, while the credit would, inc would be better, the yields might go up because people might say, well, we, 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 should be, we should get more. On the other hand, there wouldn't be very minimum around. So I don't really know how the debt market would work. And I could make an argument that the yen could go in either direction in the wake of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's think about that. Something that just occurred to me, and, and from time to time you hear people say, whether it be cold fusion or something else, okay, let's talk, take the entire stock of JGBs and swap them for a zero coupon perpetual JGB. There you go. We will have one bond with infinite duration. Hang on a second. Isn't that the worst asset in the world to own if inflation arrives? Yes. So you're basically saying, look, I know you've got all these seven-year and nine-year and 10-year JGBs, but I'm sorry, we're now going to give you a zero-coupon perpetual. Nope, I don't want it, because what happens next, right? right. You, you, you issue or swap a, let's say at the time it's a seven-year JGB, whatever it is, at par with a zero-coupon perpetual, and inflation shows up, you'd think that zero coupon perpetual instantly goes to 62, <laughs> which generates tremendous losses for whoever's unfortunate, misfortunate enough to hold that paper. So you can't, look. Well, let, again, let, let, me, James, let me play devil's advocate on that then, because yeah. the, the scenario Bill has 
put forward and we're debating here has cleaned up the Bank of Japan's balance sheet nicely, right? right. Oh, They've beautiful. Done a, done a great job. So let's say they And, and they the bought, governments, the governments as right, well. Right. So let's say they bought 85% and there was 15% outstanding. They're all offered a perpetual and they all say, hell no, we don't want that thing. Well, the Bank of Japan can then start all over again, expanding their balance sheet, pay them exactly. 90 cents on the dollar, 95 cents on the dollar for it. And, and take the remaining 15% in, right? You would you, you think, which is why I just think, well, it has to come out in the yen because who the hell would want to own a Japanese asset if this is the well, way the whole thing works? Well, what's the other? Well, on the other hand, that, that what, if it made the Japanese stock market go up and well, hunters yeah. in China and everywhere else want to float, I mean, <laughs> the, the yen right. could rally. Other than the fact that all those people that own those T-bills you just mentioned, they might want to take their, their dollars and go home. Right. So that would put downward pressure on the end. Oh, they would, and by the way, actually hold that thought for one second, but, but there's another important asset that the Bank of Japan owns, which in the event of the yen going down a lot would, would generate tremendous returns on the Bank of Japan's balance sheet, which is US dollars and treasuries. So if dollar yen went from 107.44 to 207.44, well, in yen terms, the Bank of Japan's balance sheet looks pretty good. <laughs> but just on this, and this is a little bit technical, but when these global investors decide to swap their dollars for yen, more often than not, they're swapping those dollars with Japanese banks who reinvest the yen into Japanese bills, and that's a very key source of dollar liquidity for Japanese banks. So the People's Bank of China lends dollars to Mizuho. Mizuho sell, helps them swap it into yen. They buy Japanese government bills. The People's Bank of China creates effectively a UST bill with a yield pickup. But Mizuho can use those dollars and recycle them and invest them in US dollar high yield. <laughs> well, that brings me to a slightly different topic, but I think it's a good segue for it. I would like to get your thoughts on the, the concept. There's a popular concept in the world today that people that borrow dollars, yeah. uh, sorry, issue debt, are short dollars. Yeah. I always rail against that because having shorted a few things in my life, Stop. I like to I like to point <laughs> I like to point out that well gee, when I short something, A, I have to put a deposit up and maintain that margin. Right. B, That's I don't right. get the proceeds from the from the debt sale. And um, the, there's a clearinghouse that gets in my way. So hmm. while I'm sympathetic to the intellectual analogy, in practice it's not even close. Having said that, there's a lot of smart, smart people who think that there is this large embedded short because of all this debt. Would you walk us through how you think about that? It depends entirely if the debt's ever going to be repaid. Yeah. Because I, I, and this is a, a mistake I've made over the years, hopefully not too often. And we talk about corporate bond markets and we talk about corporate bond issuance. And from time to time, people will buy back their paper at a discount or, or whatever. But the stock of corporate debt outstanding rarely declines because most people simply refinance. Especially now, 
when interest rates, right or wrong, are perceived to be lower for longer again, all these corporate guys are incentivized, the corporate treasurers, to appease their shareholders. Oh, you need to lever your balance sheet. You need to be optimizing your balance sheet. Look at the issuance of US corporate bonds since the Fed waved the magic wand. And, and I'd say precisely zero of that is likely to be redeemed. I mean, it doesn't mean it won't trade a par. I don't mean that. Yeah, it yeah. will be rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled. And as long as you can attract people to help you refinance um, at a relatively attractive pickup to the lender's benchmark, maybe we can keep this ridiculous game going. Now, in the narrow question of China and foreign currency borrowing in China, because I think that's the one that people think about a lot. Mm -hmm. And it is true. Chinese corporates have borrowed an awful lot of dollars. And some of them, we saw last year, there was quite a pickup in defaults on certain Chinese property developers who borrowed in dollars. But I just remind listeners that everything happens in China for a reason. Mm-hmm. There are no accidents. People right. get pushed aside, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, and just a, an anecdote for you all. I, we all remember the Remnimbi devaluation, which still strikes me as one of the most pointless things they've ever done in late 2015. And we were all obsessed with the amount of outflow from Remnimbi and the way Chinese citizens and corporates and whatever were switching from Remnimbi to dollars. Well, they did. But it never left the Chinese financial system. This is the magic trick. So much of those renminbi converted to dollars were redeposited with Chinese banks in dollar accounts in China. And I mention that because uh, I met some treasurers of the big Chinese banks in February 2017 in Beijing, and we're sort of chatting away as you do about how they do their job, and it's a hard job. And then they casually started to talk about their offshore branch balance sheet. And one guy just said, oh, yeah, we've got $300 billion in the Hong Kong branch. Wait, what do you do with them? Oh, well, we put them into treasuries. We put them into MBS. We put them into bonds. We do this. And uh, we put them into dollar bonds issued by Chinese corporations. Yeah. Oh. Of course they do. Ah. So we're supporting Ah. the home team. Ah. You get the odd wobble in the Evergrande paper and all these other things, which are tottering towers of indebtedness. But unless someone in Beijing gets on the bat phone and says, right, take him down, so many of these Chinese corporate dollar borrowers or foreign currency borrowers, let's call them, they're going to be rolling and rolling and rolling for a long time to come. So what, be, what, what does that what, mean? Because one, one of the big ones that went down was China Minsheng, right? Which was Li yeah. Keqing's sponsored yeah. uh, finance company. And I looked at it and I thought, well, that's, that's a political message that's being sent more than anything else. It seems where, does Li, where does where, Grant, help me remember, where did Li Keqing make all his money? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good point. And Good point. Uh, who was his <laughs> political sponsor? Yeah. <laughs> Zhang Jimin. Zhang Jimin, yeah, exactly right. right. Yeah, yeah okay. and you know that's that, the same. It's a political, 
Yeah. Right? Nothing, nothing happens by accident in Chinese financial markets. Nothing. So if I summarized what you said, would it be fair to say that the angst over a massive dollar short position precipitated debt issues is exaggerated, yes. I, okay. I think it's the number one financial Twitter scare story that, oh my gosh, the world is short dollars. And, and Bill, you and I in particular have had this discussion over the years. And it's like, okay, it's a scenario that must be evaluated. There's a lot of dollar borrowers out there that we might have to roll and there'll be people that get into trouble, global dollar shortage. And, and you know, I've argued for a decade, there's no global dollar shortage. There are dollars everywhere. It's just that from time to time they get stuck. That's right. the problem. Right. And, and, and people either for unfortunate regulatory reasons or deleveraging reasons, or we could go down the list, they can't get the dollars or they can't lend the dollars and this, that, and the other. So they scramble into markets and they pay crazy rates. And then again, we've just seen another demonstration of the power of central bank FX swap lines, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I, I joked with someone the other day, not really a joke, I just observed that we now have the Federal Reserve Tokyo branch, we have the Federal Reserve <laughs> Singapore branch, the Federal Reserve Sydney branch, uh, uh, Frankfurt branch, London branch, uh, Burn branch. I could go on, but you get the gag. Um, I'll, I'll just stop I, right there. I, I, I have, I have, <laughs> I have one more. Hey, hang on. I've got to be careful. I was just thinking, I'm turning into Kramer, man. This is, this is, <laughs> exactly I'm, right. just, I'm just going to throw that out the window. <laughs> I have one more easy kind of quick uh, uh, um, question, and then I've got another imponderable for you to finish on, okay? Oh, good. Uh, um, the short, easy layup, I think, for you particularly is I'm starting to notice chatter again <laughs> about potential CLO problems. Right. And whenever I see that chatter, the fact that I haven't seen you say anything about it in forever makes me think it's kind of a non-event. But since I have you here, I thought I would ask the question. Like all securitized markets, what makes them work is not necessarily the people willing to take risk at the bottom of the capital structure, although that's very important. What makes securitization markets work is the ability of people to take capacity at the top of the capital structure, mm. okay? That applied as much as CDOs as it does in CLOs, RMBS. So what's the AAA piece? What's the size required, assuming loss assumptions, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing and trying to simplify yeah. it a bit, I'm trying yeah. to illustrate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the reason that, part of the reason the US CLO market has chugged along for as long as it has is in part down to very strong Japanese support from my old mates at Norin Chukin <laughs> and the Government Pension Investment Fund. They've been very keen buyers of AAA CLO tranches because it gives them a yield pickup or has done. They've been buying European CLOs as well. Insurance companies are obviously very interested in these things and assuming one's done their credit homework and read the prospectus, one should generally feel up the top of the capital structure that one's pretty safe. Now, the problem going forward with CLOs and leverage loans is, look, it would be astonishing 
if we didn't have some very serious problems. And the leverage loan market compared to other parts of US credit markets that have been blessed by Federal Reserve magic has definitely been a laggard. And, and look, again, if we were to sort of imagine a part of the US credit market that would be really troublesome, it would be the CLO market. But I'm thinking about it from a different perspective. If I'm a hedge fund or a private equity guy or any of these debt funds and you say to me, look, the Fed's probably going to be at zero for a long time to come. I'll give you 10%, very hypothetical number, I'll give you 10% on the double B piece of a CLO tranche and you can do the analysis and we'll work together. People are probably going to start keep finding that relatively attractive. Okay, so there'll be some car crashes, but broadly people will find that attractive. Yeah. Given the Fed's now at zero, the yield available on the AAA tranche of some of these newly minted CEOs is probably not going to be as attractive to the Norrin-Tukens and the GPIFs and some of these other people, right? That's part of the problem here is that the returns on the biggest piece of these securitizations, you know, who's going to take them unless the US dollar goes down a long way. Mm. And then in local currency terms for a yen based yeah. investor, or, yeah. right, you get compensated via a weaker dollar. So all in all, Bill, I, I am watching CLOs. I know there's a fair bit of chatter around and um, um, all that kind of stuff. And, and we definitely should watch it. Um, there's definitely, it would be extraordinary if there were not any defaults in the leverage loan market in the United States. But I'm, I'm reasonably uh, relaxed about it um, and, and thinking longer term about who's going to replace Noren Chukin. Okay. Bill, if you're getting your imponderable, let me just ask one more question on this, James, because it's always in the plumbing that this stuff starts to get wobbly. Sure. We saw this in 07. Yeah. We, had, we had the repo market last year when the people who yeah. watch it said, this is important. And everyone else said, well, nothing to see here. And they kind of tamped it down a little bit. When you look at all the various aspects of the plumbing, is there an Achilles heel that you think, okay, if something's liable to blow, it's, it's likely going to be kind of over here. It's the repos. Okay. The CLOs I'm watching them, but they're okay. Is there anything that, you've got on kind of high alert? Central clearing. Okay. Central clearing. And we had another pretty stern test in March and April and the daily margin calls are very large. But we have never had a sustained margin call, right? A sustained reversal of trend that's lasted months. And there's an awful lot of people out there who have an awful an awfully large amount of long dated interest rate swaps, for example, yep. all of which needs to be collateralized. Now it did get pretty hairy there as we saw in treasury in the treasury market and, and long dated swaps market in March. I mean, some of those gyrations, but they didn't last terribly long. So there were some margin calls required, but think for example, about the gigantic liability driven investing sector here in the United Kingdom hugely important chunk of the UK financial system, which combines pension funds, long dated interest rate swaps, derivatives and repo. And by definition, a pension fund does not have cash. So if you get rung up and said, oh, I need XYZ margin, 
well, you better hope you have a lot of gilts or treasuries available to post. So we've had a couple of good tests. Up until now, the system has worked well. But I do wonder about the ability of the pipes on the back end of central clearing and with, I don't mean to say less sophisticated, but less technologically advanced participants mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that rely on central clearing, if their systems are not up to scratch, I worry about that. But I will make a key point, or not a key point, I will make the overriding point that I think everyone's known me for a long time as the plumbing guy, which is always good fun, but you can't be just, you know, the man with a hammer. <laughs> and frankly, Grant, most of the things I've written about the plumbing, with the exception of last September and, of course, March, over the past five years, have nearly been all from the perspective of, I know everyone's talking about it, but that's not true. Right. Here's why. And there, even today, I mean, there is so much garbage written about the, the workings of the financial system, repo markets, cross-currency basis swap. There's conspiracy theories everywhere over Twitter. And because it's complicated, everyone goes, oh, yeah, that must be that right. Must be or, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh cross-currency basis swap. You know, Can you spell that, please? <laughs> I think there's a uh, – I'll get back to you, friend. <laughs> <laughs> so I saved this question for last because oh. it's not really – you're in your specific wheelhouse as everything else I asked you was, but I know you must have thought about this and it's again, it's an imponderable about the end game. I regret that I'm probably the last guy to know about this, but I've recently become familiar with Mike Green's work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, you and I had an online chat about that. But um, yeah. so since we talked, I've paid attention to it and he was kind enough to forward a paper and, I've, I've read all that stuff and it's, and as a sort of a, I don't want to say a student, but when you run a short book for a long time, as I did, you, you have to learn to be able to read the tape to some degree. So you know when to add or cut back and mm. blah, blah, blah. And, um, and, and so, and, and, and we would, I would very much like to talk to Mike himself about this and we're going to endeavor to do that. But since we have you, uh -oh. <laughs> Obviously, passive investing can only go so far before it t distorts the market. Right. I, I think from his writings, I think he has pretty much acknowledged that we're, we're past that now, at least to some degree, whereby mm -hmm. prices aren't really being set by the informed behavior of thousands or millions or, uh, of people who are processing the information. I think the flows are, I think the, 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 the uh, it's like 70% is passive. I don't want to say the stats because I'm going to get it wrong, but it's enough to where for the first time in the last couple of weeks, when I look at my screen, it makes sense now mm. because I can see mm. that it's, a, we've evolved into one giant voting machine and the weighing part yeah. does, doesn't a happen. Price. That's a very good description. Yeah. And, and yeah. so it's, it's just knowing what I'm up against and I'm not trying to short, but even if it doesn't matter what you're involved in, whether it's gold mining stocks or, you know, X, Y, Z, knowing why the tape is as distorted as it is helps. So I would, I, my question to you is, do you have a thought on how that may end? Uh, because it's one, like, again, it's one of these things that makes my head hurt when I think about it. Yeah. They've already yeah. gone too far probably, but they're not going to stop anytime soon. So, how does it end? 
or Canadian or I think it's uh can I tell you, Bill, how disappointed I am to see CNBC on in the background of your office? I, I would never have imagined that. Oh, my God. <laughs> Melanie, my wife was in here. I was out getting an MRI this morning, and she came in here and turned that on. Dude, what's going on? It's this a prank. Is, Holy is, smokes. I'm so bad. You've been Jeez, pranked. We have to cut this off the tape. I'll never live it down. <laughs> oh, I need- I was going to say something, but I didn't want to interrupt. Um, the, um, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm horrified. Oh, gosh. By the way, we call it bubble vision, not CNBC. Oh, I, no, I, I, I'm not going to hold it against you, but. No, that's okay. Respect. <laughs> Mike is one of the most extraordinary thinkers I've come across. Um, all of that research and digging he did himself. I remember him stress testing his conclusions against a range of investors around the world, basically saying, I want you to prove me wrong. Prove me wrong, yeah. And nobody could. And then he's repositioned himself in his new business, and I think he's doing really well. And he's someone to whom I pay enormous attention because he's an iconoclastic thinker mm-hmm. who does his own work, which is very unusual. Yeah, very rare. And I think the broad point he's making, we can think about it passive versus active, or we can just think about the float, like we were discussing earlier about Uh the German curve. And this is something that's come up with my own clients for four or five years now. JP Morgan did a survey, I think, 2016 or 17, about global turnover, who is what. And they came to the conclusion that as much as 80 to 90% of the turnover in global exchanges on any given day was non-discretionary flow. So it could be principal trading firms. It could be these giant factor machines, which I've talked about a lot, Bill, over the years. Mm Um, it could be the passive flows. It could be, you know, the retail, well, not retail hunters, but, you know, basically if 80 to 90% of the flow is systematic or set and forget or, or whatever, and you as the discretionary investor, the active investor, the fundamental investor, only 10% of the float on any given day or flow, you could be the greatest analyst of your chosen stock on the planet. You could have known the stock for decades. You could know management. You know every moving part of their business. But if you mistime it on any given day, it sounds strange, but it's important these days, even for value investors, if you you mistime it, you are just going to get run over by the systematic flow. Mm -hmm. And that systematic flow can just keep going and going and going and going. And, I, and I, you know, I, I think the factor machines, as we've seen this another factor mm-hmm. smash up in equities this week, I mean, extraordinary moves in momentum versus value versus growth versus quality versus size, all these different things. And the amount of money allocated to that is enormous. Maybe it's too much. But Mike's making a good point about systematic flow more generally and how it distorts markets. But there's an important rider on top of all of this, and that is incentives. 
And there's some reflexivity to this that I really wish I'd thought about a long, long time ago. And it's not central banks, although they're a part of it. But if I'm an asset allocator, sovereign wealth fund, foundation, family office, etc., and I'm imagining the world over the next five or 10 years, and you, and you come to the conclusion at your investment committee that policy rates are going to remain low, inflation might remain roughly at averages, bond yields down, this can the other, then your expected rate of return is quite low, obviously. But for the allocator, there's another conundrum because if my expected rate of return is low, then the fees I pay mm -hmm. on my external investments are a very large and rising part of my expected returns. And therefore, I think, you know, I've known that manager for a long time. I know that sector. I know that product. But if I'm expecting on a global absolute return bond fund that I might make, and this is a very stylized example, 100% per annum, sorry, 100 basis points, what am I saying? 100 yeah. basis points per annum. I'm not going to play BlackRock 75 basis points for that. No, yeah. I can't. And you create these incentives where more and more money is like, okay, allocated on a systematic basis. And, and it's effectively an embedded short volatility position, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got this giant pile of money that's not discretionary. It's set and forget on the assumption that if everyone else is doing it, I should do it too. And I'm not sure what the reckoning is. I mean, we could be dramatic and say, well, when passive own 90% plus of, of the global stock markets and well, let's face it, we should probably add the Swiss National Bank to this discussion, yeah, of course, the Bank of absolutely. Japan, and then, uh, you know, all these other fellas. It's, the, the point is, Bill, it's really, really, really hard to be a stock picker. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. Oh, hang on, i just got to take profit on my hertz. One sec. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh. Um, um, but the... <laughs> But it is really hard, but there's some light. If this inflation view turns out to be correct, you're going to have higher headline inflation, higher core inflation, steeper long ends of government bond curves, yep. somewhat steeper, and grant given the flatness of all these curves. I mean, a five-year treasury at uh, a whopping 32 and a half basis points. Every curve trade is just a bet on duration now because the front end's flat. Yeah. But if you imagine high realised inflation, some kind of higher inflation premium in the long end of, let's say, the US curve, you'd imagine that would be accompanied by higher realised interest rate volatility, which would be negative for credit because credit is, you know, short an option. Um, it would be negative for equities. And you'd imagine it would be finally, 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 after a long, painful decade, very good for value Yeah. as a concept. Mm -hmm. But, Bill, I'm afraid there's, there's, in terms of structural flow, I don't think there's a great deal of good news for the very patient, capable, process-driven 
value investor. Um, but but I'm afraid this passive conundrum and these systematic flows are going to continue to dominate markets for some time to come. What, and if I, was to, if I was to be the Dr. Evil of this, I would say that the real test comes if for any reason the computers aren't able to talk to each other, which was the case on some days in March. I'd push a button and nothing happens. Oh, it's down another 5%. I push another button. I go to ring, pick up the phone. I haven't done that for 20 years. I pick up the phone to the Citibank desk. You know, your call is important to us. Please hold. You know, <laughs> yeah. And so that's you, you really build the. Right, right. I'm afraid we have to um, assume that Mike's point, it's not an easy one to address. It is what it is. And we have to factor it in to the way we think about navigating equity markets more broadly. Well, I, yeah, well, Bill, I, I just think about it as, as you know, we've basically created a beast that feeds itself. Yes. <laughs> and once you do that, right, yeah. you have to rely on it basically eating too much and, and yeah. making itself yes. sick. And that, that's, that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. That's a good way to think about it. The sad conclusion, uh, or not conclusion, but uh, <clears throat> sketch of where we are is we have bond markets where the prices are administered. It, the bond markets don't really exist anymore for G7 countries, at least in the government sector. And now we have a U.S. stock market that is sort of on autopilot from the passive flow sector. So basically, we have two of the most important markets on the planet that aren't really markets anymore, to a large degree. To a large degree. Uh, so this is where it gets really interesting, and we think about potential—not the actual, but potential scenarios and tactics. I wouldn't say I totally agree with the idea that G7 bond markets are locked down because, I mean, you know, even over the past week, we've seen a little bit of a flurry of activity in the treasury market, which relatively speaking is unusual. I mean, it went from 60 basis points to 90 basis points to 70 basis points. Wow. It happened, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when we imagine a world where the systematic, the passive, the non-discretionary flow into equities just keeps going. And we imagine a world where central banks, as intended, end up dominating the free float of high-grade government bonds in their jurisdiction. And yet we dare to imagine a different world of higher inflation or just for whatever reason, higher volatility and different outcomes than everyone's parameters. you think to yourself, well, if the stock market is going to do its thing and wobble around a bit, but the passive machines are just in all day, whatever, okay, maybe there's some specific parts of equity markets, obviously, that get very interesting. If the bond markets, if the central banks are going to fight me tooth and nail for every basis point of P&L in bonds or rates, ugh, but what about foreign exchange? And my bet would be in that hypothetical world, the pressure valve for so much of this would be foreign exchange, which is the biggest market of them all, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And tonight or this evening here in Wimbledon, we have, you know, we had a bit of a, a flurry in foreign exchange realized in implied yeah. volatility in March, April, of course we did. Mm -hmm. It's all come back down. 
because interest rate volatility has come down, because central banks have basically said, we're not going to let that happen. And of course, currency volatility can't move too far if interest rate volatility is not going to move too far. Or more accurately, mm -hmm. if forward curves in different currencies don't really change that much, they're kind of static, yeah. then the currencies themselves are not going to really gyrate. But if you imagine different circumstances in the world, if you imagine equities just going to, everyone's going to say, yeah, I know everyone's excited about X, Y, Z, but I've got to keep allocating because rates are down and there's an equity risk premium I need to harvest. And the bond markets uh, shut down to speculators or, or, or people make it difficult for speculators to generate profit then my sense would be that the pressure valve for so much of it is foreign exchange volatility, currencies more generally, and of course, Bill, commodities. Yeah. And the thing that is so instructive, I think, for all of us about March, April, there was only one market that cleared, oil. Yeah. And it cleared in a way that no machine could have predicted. No, no. It had all sorts of stupid instruments that were tracking it. It had the dumbest ETF, which told everyone when they're going to roll and built up positions and people hadn't read the prospectus. There were people gaming it. And you had a barrel of oil trading at a negative number. It traded negative. What? does that tell us about the ability of, let's call them euphemistically, non-administered markets to surprise <laughs> us, right? Right. And it does not mean to anyone who's listening, oh my gosh, I got to go to interactive brokers or heaven forbid, Robin Hood, I got to open my currency trading account. Doesn't mean that at all. Because retail and even institutional, it's very, very hard to, to, to actively trade FX risk. As you both know, it's very, very yeah. difficult to do yeah. well consistently. And part of that's because that with a couple of notable exceptions, such as Brazil and Turkey and, and Sterling, which has been a special situation due to Brexit, you know, currency markets have been incredibly range bound for, what, half a dozen years? Yeah. And people get so wound up about every basis point and nothing's really happening. No. But it's something to reflect on if the world changes, scenarios change, outcomes change, I should say, not scenarios, realised outcome change. It could be inflation, it could be some other dislocation. It could be round two of COVID. We don't know. Yeah. It's just to think about what should I do to be less wrong? Is it the gold stocks, which still, by every measure, seem to have done nothing yeah. in response to a higher bullion price? And the three of us could differentiate between the very, very speculative ones and the ones that could survive a few cycles. And you think about what other instruments are out there that are relatively liquid that could help me be less wrong than others if there's this big dislocation. And I think you tend to, you're probably worthwhile wondering about what do I understand about commodities? What do I understand about commodity companies, the big ones with good balance sheets? Mm -hmm. Do I understand, you know this, Bill, do I understand mm -hmm. some of these oil companies in March, April that are probably going to make it mm -hmm. and are trading at a discount? How do I think <laughs> about these alternative ways of 
of hedging against volatility. If I'm not going to do be allowed to make much money in, in, in combating the systematic flow in stocks and the central bank bid, et cetera, in bonds. So that's why I'm wondering about that, right? Mm -hmm. what, what's but, the pressure valve? And I think it's com commodities and foreign exchange. But it's interesting, James, because that brings us back full circle to this idea of inflation, right? Because it, it, yeah. that, that's what it really takes, I suspect, to get these things going in a way that you can yeah. make some money out of them in a reasoned and rational way. Yes. So what, everything I've said, to be clear, is conditional. Sure. I'm imagining what I might need to get involved in if the world becomes disruptive yeah. again. But don't you think, I mean, to be a decent risk manager in whatever it is you do, you have to think about all kinds of different possibilities, even if they seem bizarre, because that's what fuels the process and gets you to not be caught. Um, uh, I'll tell you a story surprised. about one of the greatest macro investors I've worked with who's invisible. <laughs> And he's done so well for decades. And he was a mentor to me a long time ago. And he said, look, it's not about right or wrong. It's about constant scenario analysis, reading, 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 thinking, understanding what happened in the past, using charts to take the temperature of markets, but reading, thinking, reading, thinking. And you build up a portfolio of what he calls fault lines. Now, fault lines doesn't mean bearish. It just means cracks, cracks in the narrative, cracks in the consensus view, market structure, whatever. And he does his research, he puts it on the shelf. And he's so diligent in watching markets, which requires, as you both know, requires enormous effort and yeah. discipline to just turn on your Bloomberg the same time every morning and look at the same things and just notice if anything's different or what the market's telling you. And then inevitably he'll see something and go, hey, hey wait a minute. I know this, and you pull it off the shelf and go, right, I'm going to do this in Euro dollar futures. Something's changing here. I'll put one risk unit on. Oh, hang on. No one's talking about this, but this is going now. I'll put two. Yeah. And I'll put five. And he's done that time and time again in currencies and rates and, and occasionally equities and, and certain emerging markets. But it's an extraordinary skill. But it's the to embellish Bill's point, Part of the challenge for all of us is to find that time to just mm. carve out hours to read yep. and think and evaluate. And it's perfectly okay to say, you know what? I know everyone's talking about this. I know everyone's got an opinion. I don't understand it. I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> That's okay. I, I don't know. I'm going to let it go until I see something that I do yeah. understand. And, yeah. you know, I've had some pretty intense conversations with him about inflation as well. And he's not betting on it yet because he doesn't see it. Mm -hmm. He can conceptualise it, but he mm -hmm. doesn't see it. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't think the markets are smelling it, although he's obviously got an interest in gold and especially silver bill, which I think looks perhaps more interesting than gold, but that's another yeah. conversation. Well, just since you brought it up, mate, oh, you want to finish? I'll, I'll just give oh, you a... We, we came to the conclusion that as much as we think Milton Friedman tells us, well, he did tell us monetary inflation is always and everywhere a monetary problem. I wonder if it's always and everywhere a political choice. Hmm. What's the path of least resistance? Well, fiscal oh, policy is sure. all in. You know, let's just, yeah, let, yeah, let's just turn it up a bit. Yeah. Well, that's why um, it's so frustrating right now because they're trying to turn this damn thing up. They're making the choice, yeah. but they're yeah. unable well, to. Well, perversely, 
all of the years of lack of success, I'm putting up sneer quotes now, on generating enough inflation, i.e. the 2% that they made up was their target, you can, almost, you can almost see when Jay Powell does these press conferences that he's sort of frustrated that he hasn't been able to hit the target. Yes. And th- they are going to jump for joy, in my opinion, when they hit that target, and they're going to let it run hot. And yes. I'm not saying it's ready to go. Yes. All we've managed to, to, to sketch out here are preconditions that, that didn't quite exist till now, both due to variables and psychology, perhaps. And, right. and that would, based on our conversation, if we start to see that, that would change a lot of things. And it might create some new things that guys like us who are more value-oriented and less momentum-oriented might be able to muck around in. It, you remind me of something I ought to have said way back when we were thinking about inflation and everything else. And firstly, these central banks will never quit. No. 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 Second, the Fed is clearly having a big debate about not if, but when to do yield curve control. Mm-hmm. Combined with perhaps average inflation targeting. So now that we're all in, let's do more cowbell, right? Right. <laughs> so even more cowbell. What a great skit that is. Yeah, no kidding. And, and Keep in mind that the view of central banks is that easier financial conditions create jobs and create inflation. Now, right or perhaps wrong, the canonical view of every central bank in the planet is that you need to work to keep financial conditions loose if you are ever hope if you ever hope to meet your self-anointed. 2%-ish inflation target. It's financial conditions or nothing. And that's unfortunately the way they think. But the other key part of all this central bank activity over the past decade plus has been to ensure that real interest rates don't go up too much in order that we continue to take risk in order that lower real discount rates support equities and risk assets, of course, and most of all, get real rates trending down and staying down so we bring more and more and more and more and more consumption forward from the future. That was the game. Why? To avoid a liquidation event. That's what the game is, to avoid a liquidation event by keeping real rates down and, and in the future, further down. And this is where it gets really interesting. If you assume that the Fed is going to do yield curve control, which you'd imagine somewhere out to the three-year, maybe five-year part of the curve involves the Fed acting to begin with to push the very front end of the Earth's curve down to effectively zero. And the expectation would be that the forward curve flattens as well. 
That would be their expectation. It retains a bit of steepness mm -hmm. for the banking system and regional banks. Right. But their expectation would be that feeds through to the entire curve. So long-term rates come down as well. Oh, what does it mean for real interest rates if not the front end, but all of the treasury curve ends up being parked at a really low nominal yield, either because of the Fed or spillovers from other central banks or the world's not confident about growth, the world gets disinflation in their head. So what happens to real interest rates if the world's risk-free curve, which is treasuries, is locked at a very low nominal yield and we can't create inflation? Real interest rates go up. Yeah. And that wouldn't be good. Now, we're, we're a long way from that, but that's what I'm wondering as I contemplate the world of latter this year. I think it unlikely that the Fed does yield curve control before December, but they're working on it. And we'll probably see the smoke flare go up just as it always does at Jackson Hole. Wouldn't they need a catalyst, though, to, to bring that out of the closet? I mean... No. Well, he said it at the press conference. Yeah, I know. It was, like a planted, it was like a planted question. They it had already been in the journal earlier in the week. Right. They don't, need a, they don't need a catalyst. They just need to reach consensus. And then I they see. need to think about how to implement it. And by the way... But, 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 but you yeah. lost me there for one second, because as you were doing the build-up to that, I kept thinking, well, wait a second. You're setting the scenario for creating even more negative real rates but you concluded with real rates would go up. So if I lock rates at some minuscule number of basis point and inflation starts to rise. Yeah, that's I'm my creating... point. That's, no, no, that's my point. Okay. It would be a deadly combination if you had very low nominal rates and no inflation, if you couldn't create it. Oh, right? yes. That's, right. that's okay. what I was trying to say. Okay. So, uh, so that's, that's, what's in, that's when their mind is to make yeah. them want to push harder because that's yeah. what they're worried about. Is that what you're that suggesting? That is what they are worried about. I got you. About, and they so have been worried about that for 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so perversely, that feeds back into them doing more cowbell, so to speak, to create the scenario that we've kind of come into talking about that, that could, might blossom prospectively. The Fed this week, Jay Powell outdoved Bernanke and Yellen by a mile. Yes, I thought the exact same thing when I watched that. Now, a lot of people, just to think about tactics, have said, oh, you know, he's responsible for the market sell-off. Well, I think the three of us would probably agree things were extraordinarily frothy yeah. going into the Fed. They had trailed that he was going to be dovish. The dollar was under pressure. You know, it's not as if people were sort of shorting stuff. So we would do a correction, but he was adamant about what he and his colleagues feel they will need to do. Their forecasts over the years of the US economy have not been great. That's big but on inflation, they are absolutely determined to do at least as much as they've done thus far, at least as much. And for the chairman of the Fed and his colleagues, to say that we really don't think 
we're going to be touching policy rates this side of 2022. And when their September statement of economic projection comes out, they'll probably say, we're not expecting to do anything with rates until 2023. I mean, you could probably put in an algorithm to handle every Fred press conference from there on. Ladies and gentlemen, we have nothing to say. We, st we would just direct you back to our previous statement and just recycle that every, every month or so. But um, it's extraordinary to see just how dovish he was this week, just how dovish. And as much as I tease them and, and many other people tease them, you know what? Are those people punting all this stuff on Robin Hood? Are they irrational? Are they irrational? No. Or, no. Are they, or are they responding to the incentive that money is free? Listen, they, they, have, they, don't have any, they don't have any previous biases like we all do, right? We, we know how it's supposed right. to work. So well, think right. about it. Yeah, um, in my, in, you essentially, uh, you guys won't agree with this exactly, I'm sure, but we've had 25 years of what I would say moderately irresponsible to massively irresponsible monetary policy. And in that period where they've done all these things, all these crimes against financial sanity, the price to be paid for market participants, equity market participants particularly, has been about 15 months from in 01, late 00 into maybe early 02, and really about a year of really severe pain in um, 08, yeah. and most recently 15 minutes of pain. Yeah. And each time they create bigger and bigger messes, but now that they have taken ownership of the markets to heart, because to me, they think that the stock market is just a, the portfolio balance, balance channel dial they turn to create jobs, we, we now have a two, two and a half generations of people who've not seen anything wrong with these policies. So I'm not even slightly surprised to see the kids of these people, you know, playing with, on Robinhood and, and they, they've been taught and they're being incentivized. So their stock selections may not be great, but I understand why they're there, which is the point you're making, I think, James. Add on top of that, Bill, the magic of zero commission trading, which is the key point yeah. Another point that Mike Green's been making that kicked in in November 2019. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's make it as easy as possible to turn the entire financial system into an online gambling machine. Right. That's what we've done. I it's know. like sports betting on steroids in nearly every instrument. Well, that's not quite right, but certainly in stocks. Stocks for Who sure. Who cares? Who cares yeah. if Hertz is paper or Chesapeake's papers but, trading at five cents. Oh, I'm going to trade up a stock. Honest to God, though, didn't you both think that when they filed the shelf last night for the Hertz, mm -hmm. the thing was going to go crashing to zero? <laughs> last I looked, it was up 50% today. Yes, look, I, 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 look, I, you know, as you saw earlier, I've been really involved in that one. Um, but, but it's like, why not? Who yeah. cares? And it, it, what world are we in when a bankrupt car rental company with a share count of 142 million shares outstanding as of last night can issue 247 million shares yeah. and up it goes? What kind of madness 
is that. But to be fair to them all, is it mad? Or, and this may be a bit of a stretch, does it tell us about the animal spirits out there and the inflationary mm. tendencies that are just starting to bubble up? I really don't know. Yeah, but, but to be fair to, you know, I, 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 it, it's tempting for the three of us to say, oh, yeah, it wouldn't happen in my day. You know, we bought stuff, we read prospectuses and blah, blah, blah. So, oh, these people are stupid. Well, again, given the incentives provided to them, what I, do we I, I, I don't, if I was young, I mean, when I was young. Uh, Bill, Bill, just I'm for the sure record. I Bill, uh, Bill, just for the record. You're young, mate. Oh, that's right. When I was younger, when I was young these guys' age, when I was these guys' age, I'm sure I would have participated because I would have thought, I'm smart enough to do this. I, I wouldn't have been, but I would have thought I would have been. And, and what young person doesn't think they're smart? I mean, you only find out how dumb you are as you get older, right? So Sorry, I what? totally, I totally get it. What are I you totally talking about? <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen, guy. Let, let me let me ask you both one one more quick question, James. I'm, I'm wary of your time, but ah, it's all, oh, it's all good. But but we've we've talked about you know some of the choices that the central banks are making. So let me ask you both this. You you too, Bill. Is anything the central banks do these days a choice? Or are they now at the point where everything they do is predetermined? They do what they have to do. No, nothing is a choice. Go ahead. You first, James. I think that's been the case for, well, it's probably largely been the case for a decade plus. Um, not zero choice, but little choice. Yeah. I'm Ben Bernanke. I can just hold a press conference and say, ladies and gentlemen, we did our best, it's over. And then that's the end of the Fed as an independent central bank. And they've got these literally legally binding mandates written into law in every part of the world. And when you sit there and, and in one of these big roles and when you join, you sign a bit of paper that is legally binding. And I think that does tend to focus the mind of all these right. central bankers. So they can fulminate, and many of them privately do. It's rotten that we're the only game in town. However, we have yeah. to do this. Yeah. I naively thought when the, I thought when the equity bubble burst, when it was, I knew it was going to burst, and I was running short money, of course, to try to capitalize right. on that. I thought for sure after that bubble burst, we would look at what we did, learn our lesson, clean it up, and set ourselves up to do better. Mm. I naively held that view. Uh, uh, and I don't know whether it was the fact in, in, the, in my book about the Fed, I said it was because of 9-11. Changed mm. the narrative. People got weren't, oh, it was 9-11 that caused the problems and they, then they passed the first bubble off as just a dot-com craze, which when it was more than that. Exactly. Um, so I, I, after when they started doing it again, heading in, and I can see they were starting to create a housing bubble, I, I realized I had been naive and that they would stop it, but I really thought that because then they hosed the public again, I thought after the OA, when the real estate bubble burst, I was certain that they would get religion. And I think, and of course I wrote the book and thought I was gonna make a difference and that was laughable too. Um, but 
when they started QE, I, I assumed it would never end. And we, we, and, and we're, we're, we're cemented on the path. There's nothing they can do to get off this, just like they can't leave NERP and ZERP. So they maybe could have done some things along the way. Perhaps if Bernanke would have stopped in 210 and said, okay, boys, I saved the system. Now you're on your own. It's going to get bumpy. But if we keep doing this kick in the can stuff, we're going to have all kinds of problems, blah, blah, blah. Maybe they could have gotten out of it, but they have no choice. I mean, they have a choice, but they really don't have a choice. They are on, they, they have no choice. They're doing what they're doing and they're going to keep doing more of it. That's what but, I think. But for me, if you look at, if you, you know, you look at the chart, the balance sheet and you look at the, 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 oh. the, the runoff, which was watching paint dry, that was the last vestige, the yes. speed with which that went from going down gently yeah. to going vertical yeah. past yeah. everything we see. That to me was like, okay, now it's which, which is proof positive that they yeah. can't stop these problems. That's it. Now there's no choices to be made. Just a just a sidebar, which I think is quite relevant, and I've been very very fortunate over the past thirteen years now to get to know some of these key central bankers and. The number one takeaway is they're just fellow human beings with families and everything else. And I don't want you to sort of put the background music of violins and harps or anything like that. But when you get to know them a bit and you sit down with them, they you appreciate how hard the job is oh. when you are most unfortunately the only game in town. And Arguably, too many of them are still obsessed with their models and tweaks and thumb dials and everything else. Most infamously, John Williams, who, without any manifest understanding of financial markets, was made president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which is the most important central bank in the world, or at least district mm -hmm. of the Fed. Extraordinary. And uh, I think that's cost the Fed a bit. But why do I say all that? In my experience, Jay Powell is as savvy on markets as any central banker oh, yeah. you will meet. Oh, yeah. Read those, read those minutes. I mean, he's, he gets it. He is so good on the plumbing. He understands every moving bit of the financial system. And what I'm trying to say is, as much as people say the fourth quarter of 2018 was a big mistake, and arguably in December it was, that last hike, I'm not sure all of that was an accident, right? And he'd been building up to that for some time. He seemed to be a little bit ahead of his colleagues at the FRMC. And then you may recall he said at Jackson Hole, and I'm paraphrasing a tiny bit, yeah, 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 all this R-star stuff, poof. you know, it's impossible to forecast. And you could see, you know, John Williams' jaw drop out of his head and everything like that. But it was an important signal to the world that we we're going to keep going. And then he chucked on top of that long way from neutral. Now, that's pretty gutsy, yeah, to yeah. say the least, when you're chairman of the Fed and you're acting to try to take some wind out of asset prices. Now... Unfortunately, he was too successful. And then he got some pretty bad earnings from the Facebooks and other guys. And all of a sudden, what started as a correction started to uh, get ahead of him. And for reasons that 
may yet emerge, they lock themselves into the December 2018 rate hike. And I'd have to think at least some FOMC members realised, oh gosh, we can't dissent because that would be worse. All right. And then this back and fill spin was that Jay Powell and his colleagues got together over the new year period in 2018 and did a handbrake turn and dot, dot, dot. But the reason I raised that is because I'm not sure he's getting as much direct market intelligence today, given how much is in his calendar, than he was when he was just a member of the Board of Governors yeah. of the Federal Reserve System, because yeah. you have a bit more time in your calendar. But again, in my experience, there are few more savvy central bankers in the world when it comes to how things work than Jay Powell. And then I watched the press conference this week and I'm like, he's never going to do that again. He's never going to do it again. And uh, that's a function of where the world's got to. Do what again? I'm sorry, I didn't know what we mean. Never, he's never, never going to try and pop an asset bubble. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, he yeah. basically, he stated that this week in the press conference, basically. That was a confirmation of what we knew. Mm-hmm. But gee whiz, for a central bank, for the chairman of the board of governors to say that is is quite something. It's quite something. Unreal. But yeah, look, Bill, it's the shoulda, coulda, woulda, the, the hindsight reflections and everything else. I'm afraid we're so far beyond all yeah. that. And uh, and then, you know, and, and while I remember it, part of the reason the March smash-up was so bad was not just because of COVID-19 and shutdowns, is that it was in January, everyone was cash is trash. Oh, get me more illiquidity, duration, leverage. Get me more punting capacity. I need to lever up. I need to do more of this. I need to do more of that. There was no margin of error at all in the system. No. Which exacerbated the, the response to the rolling lockdowns. Right. And the Fed and every central bank was forced to operate as the market maker of first resort. Yep. <laughs> and how you get out of that, I don't know. Oh, I, I, I just assume we're so far past the point of no return that the only question is, is does something stop them, which is where we started this conversation. And I, I know something will because these things can't go on forever, but I don't know when and how long they'll be. And anyway, that's, that's, that's why I was, and we were both so interested to talk to you about these topics because we don't know, we don't know what's going to make it end or the timing, but at some point it will. And, but for now, it's clear that they are, you know, um, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. We're not wavering for a few years, they're, that's what they're planning. Yeah, and I think if I was to think about an overarching framework for these, this discussion, it's like, okay, if inflation, again, a hypothetical, so let's just say higher inflation than we're used to is a thing. We're probably not gonna see it first in the traditional things, which is the long end of the bond curve. Right, or, right. Right. 
or break-evens or, or even zero coupon inflation swaps. I mean, quite frankly, why does something like that even exist? A zero coupon inflation swap. Isn't that just like a punting machine? I don't know. I shouldn't get into that. But no. We've got to imagine where should we be looking for signs that something's changing? And the answer, of course, is in non-administered markets. I won't call them suppressed. I'd call them non-administered right. markets that are generally clearing. And that leads us to currencies and, in Come particular, on. commodities. 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 Yeah. And, and look, it's not just that gold's doing what it's doing. And I think all things being considered of late, it's been very resilient. Mm, right? Yes, yes. Um, we should be thinking about silver, which is a bit of a laggard. Bill, we should be eyeballing for potential breakouts. I mean, there's a bit of reflexivity here, perhaps, but looking for breakouts in baskets of junior gold stocks, which have been trading up, trading up, trading up, as you know. But if suddenly there's a bigger move and no one can explain it, that's really important. Yeah. And then I look at copper and I go, you know, I could go down all the, the checklist. Right. And it's just to keep an eye on all these things that might be changing. Because as Bruce Kovner said many years ago in that wonderful Jack Schwager book, Market mm, yeah. Wizards. Yeah, great book. All of them are great. Um, breakouts for reasons that nobody can understand are normally terrific risk reward trades. And that's stuck with me for a long time. Mm. So look, I'm, I know I, I can't be definitive on inflation yet. I'm imagining different scenarios. I'm thinking about where we're at with monetary policy and what's still to come. I'm thinking about fiscal policy, which I very much doubt will be dialed back. I'm thinking about supply side, a supply side shock. I'm thinking about supply chain disruption, delivery delays. I'm thinking about the struggle to get people back from over 100% unemployment insurance to actually physically back doing their job and will companies have to bid up? And then, of course, something we didn't talk about, the ability of companies to pass through higher prices if they're forced to wage wages. So there's a whole series of hypotheticals and I'm trying to keep an eye on it and try to think about it over the next six months of 2020 because, quite frankly, if we cannot create somewhat higher inflation with all that in the next six months, then when will we, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's another side amen to, to Amen to right? that. that. That's, that's so it's not, very it's well not, summed. And it's not like bank crash wallet, this is the scenario. It's like, hang on a second. It's like, if we get to October and we're talking to each other again and going, gee whiz, you know, everyone's back online, the world's picking up somehow, and there's still no inflation. Great point. Well, maybe that's a good place to end it. We can come back in October and discuss this again. There you go. <laughs> I'll do whatever you like. It's been very pleasant. All right, mate. Take Thanks, care. Lads. Have Thanks. a good weekend. Thanks, Thanks again. Bye, Thanks a lot. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 Right. Off I go. Wow. Fantastic. Wasn't that? Oh. I mean. Well, Bill, I'll tell you what. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, James was at the top of both our wish lists to kind of dig into this topic and Everybody that's listened to this now understands why. 
yeah, I don't even think we need to sum up what he said because it speaks for itself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's one there's one thing that that really struck on me that that I wanted to just have a very quick chat with you about, and that was the point he made when he was talking about Mike Green, um, you know, and the point he made when he was talking about this mentor of his who who was clearly a big influence on James, um, and that was the, the commonality in both their approaches that you know Mike Green is a is a smart original thinker that does all his own work, and the same with this guy is a smart original thinker that that isn't afraid to do his own work and then and then just put that away the work's done i don't need to do something with it i don't need to act on this now i just wanted to understand it better and and by understanding it it's it's there and and when you when the the dots connect and the synapses fire at some point down the track and you realize what it is like you said you pull that off the shelf and and you're just ahead of the game at that point with with people and you know and for me james is someone that i, I consider every chance i get to talk to him that's part of my learning process, right? I, I, I will make notes on this conversation and a lot of the things he said, I will be filing away um, for when that inflation does return and, and plenty of other instances of, of that you and I can probably imagine when what we've learned in these last couple of hours are going to be extraordinarily valuable to us. Yeah, I think sometimes you, you, you don't really know what you picked up that's going to be useful or uh, when you might use it. But I thought it was particularly worthwhile to hear his viewpoint on how, if inflation is to become an issue, how it might coalesce and what should we be looking for and all of that. And it might, might not be something we need to consider uh, immediately, but it's liable to be one of those things that'll be, as he said, and you know, to quote the phrase, suddenly and then all at once. That yeah. that that's pretty. I'm pretty sure if that turns out to be a, an issue, it'll kind of go like that. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, you've 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 had the chance to listen to James now. Um, his firm is Aitken Advisors. He is on Twitter. You'll find him, but it's a locked account, so uh, you'll have to ask him nicely. And we can't we can't promise that he'll allow everybody to follow him. But uh, if you can if you can get into that exclusive VIP area, trust me, it's a good place to be. Amen to that. Um, all all that remains is to uh, is to thank you for listening to episode two. Um, to thank Bill for for doing this with me. Um, you can find me on Twitter, should you wish to do so, at TTMYGH. And I am at FleckCop. FleckCap. At FleckCop. At FleckCap. Listen, we need FleckCop to the channel right handle. now. <laughs> Thanks so much. We'll be back with another one of these in the not-too-distant future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.